Good morning, my friends. How are you this morning? Did you all have a fun 4th of July? Yeah, are you um, really excited to be here this morning following all of the festivities this last week? No one's still recovering, right? You guys are all, you're all ready to go. It is such a joy to be together this morning. Thank you for responding to God's call to be here. It's so easy to convince ourselves that somehow everything that we do is up to our own choice. But one of the things that we hear time and time again through scripture and through the spirit is that God constantly beckons to us. And things that are tangible at times, yes, but mostly, mostly, God beckons to us through the silence, through those moments that are quiet, through the sort of unnoticed things that we do and we encounter. So thanks for responding to those quiet moments and for being here. It's my joy to be worshiping with you guys today. We are going to be continuing in our sermon series today, reframing how we look at our day-to-day lives by examining the scripture and through prayer and considering how God might be calling us to live into that kingdom, into the values of God's kingdom here and now. Um, Not fooling ourselves to think that somehow we're going to be transformed magically into people who can perfectly follow those values once we get into that eternal threshold, but that we are part of eternity even in this moment by the way that we participate and align ourselves with God's voice and God's purpose in the world. Today, we are looking at the parable out of Luke. It's one that's pretty common, one that we have probably heard before, one that we will probably hear many times again. This is Jesus telling the story that's often referred to as the Good Samaritan. I would probably rename it today and say that it's a better story about a kind enemy. When Jesus starts telling his story today, he's telling his story to a lawyer. The 72 disciples have just gone out and they have witnessed these miraculous things. And they come back just overjoyed and Jesus is overjoyed with them as well because they have experienced this sense of fullness and this sense of freedom. They've seen no bounds to God's work in the world through them into the communities that they live into, the lives of the people that they love. And so they come from this great moment and then in response, here is this lawyer who's, you know, trying to set some boundaries maybe or identify where those boundaries might be to that joy or to that freedom that these 72 have just come back talking about. So we're jumping in Luke 10 verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself and so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be walking down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Join me if you will, and let's pray for some illumination today. God, as we approach your scripture We pray that we will approach with clear eyes that can see familiar stories in new ways. We pray that you will help us to clear out the cobwebs of distractions that have gathered throughout the week or even gathered this morning. We pray that you will clear out the distractions that come with us knowing what we know and pray that you will help us to see something new in your scripture, in your life, It is our prayer, Lord, that we will know every nuance of your character and all of its eternal capacity. May we be people who seek to reflect your light out into the world. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have have a strange affinity for stories about lawyers. As a kid, my favorite television shows were Perry Mason and Matlock. Anyone else? Just a few. Literally just a few. I think just one over here. I graduated high school and I went to university with this dream of becoming a lawyer. And it was something that I continued to pursue even when I was studying in seminary. When I graduated seminary, it finally became apparent to me that my calling wasn't to go into the law. And so I, of course, had to turn back to television to satiate some of these desires that I had to follow the law, to participate in it. And so specifically, I turned to Law and Order. (laughs) All of them, the original one, the criminal intent, trial by jury, the short-lived Law and Order LA. I know them all, love them all, seen them all. It's a commitment. I watched every season after I had finished all of the Law and Orders. I then went on to watch every single season of The Good Wife. Anyone watch The Good Wife? My gosh, I really am alone in company today. Thank you, Greg Forgatch. My affection for lawyers is really persistent, um, so persistent that I even ended up marrying a lawyer. That is dedication. (laughs) The thing that I love about lawyers is the same thing that I don't love about lawyers. Lawyers try to find the gaps in the laws and in the instructions that direct our public behavior. Theoretically, they do this to pursue justice. Realistically, lawyers navigate the law with the intent of suiting the need that is at hand. The need that is at hand being whatever argument is going to make them the winner will make them successful. And that quality of constantly questioning and manipulating and repositioning the boundaries, 
That's something that can be endearing when you're Jack McCoy trying to solve and bring justice into the city of New York. But it's something that can be infuriating when you are the person who's trying to find the way forward for yourself and find yourself constantly blocked. Our story for today is a story about a lawyer. It's a story about a lawyer who's trying to locate the limits of the law. It's a story about this lawyer who the scripture says is trying to justify himself, which is really not that great of a translation of the Greek. In the Greek, what he's trying to do is literally to save himself. And he's trying to save himself by finding that limit or maybe by manipulating the limit that he has to reach in order to feel confident that he is counted as in with God to feel confident that he is in possession of God's good graces. So this lawyer is trying to do what all lawyers are trained to do, to manipulate, to identify, to see those limits of the boundaries of the law for a personally beneficial outcome. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Exactly who am I responsible for? He's asking. And because the truths of the kingdom of heaven can be learned about in this kingdom here on earth, Jesus tells the lawyer a story that the lawyer could understand. Jesus tells this lawyer a story about the kind of people that lawyers worked with and about the law that the lawyer served. He says this, A man was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him for half dead. Now, even though this man who has been beaten is a mystery man, the fact that he is heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho could probably cause ancient listeners to assume and would probably cause the lawyer to assume that this mystery man is a Jew. Like the lawyer is a Jew, like Jesus is a Jew, like the other people listening into this story at the time were Jews. And the reason they might assume that is because the road to Jericho was a common road for Jews to travel on going to and from the temple, which was in Jerusalem. And because it was highly traveled, it had also gained this reputation for being a dangerous road. 17 miles of twists and turns that were perfect for hiding thieves around every unsuspecting bend. And so Jesus starts off this story in a sympathetic way to the Jews who were listening. And he's setting it up this way to, to help them to intuit what is going to be coming later on down the story. Everyone knows what might happen when you walk the road to Jericho. And so Jesus continues. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Okay, how many of you like the priest? Raise your hand. How many of you think he's a good guy and you want him to walk by you when you're beaten and bleeding on the ground? The priest has gotten such a bad rap, right? But the priest, he has some conflicts that help him to not make this good decision, right? The priest is the big honcho. He's the guy who knows the law better than anybody else. 
And the priesthood was a hereditary role. It was something that fathers often trained their sons to do. For those of you who might know the Hebrew Bible, there's a story about Samuel. Eli, the one who trained Samuel to be a priest, had first trained his sons, but his sons were horrible at it. And that's why God called Samuel instead. It wasn't very uncommon for priests to live in Jericho and then travel to Jerusalem where they would serve for two weeks at a time in the temple. And so if the lawyer listening to Jesus assumes, as he would be set up to assume, that the beaten man is a Jew, then the chances are that this lawyer would also recall that there is a law in the book of Leviticus that required Jews to care for the sons of your own people which means that our lawyer listening to Jesus hears a challenge in what is happening that you and I don't hear today. This lawyer listening knows that the beaten man is probably a Jew, but the priest in the story doesn't. Now, as we have told the story of the Good Samaritan over the years, this priest is being slammed for being a calloused kind of guy. But priests were required to follow a purity code that was prescribed by the law that was based on the belief that if an impure person came into contact with the pure state of God, that they would bring instant destruction to the earth. Imagine like uh, some water being, a water drop dropping into hot oil. That's what they thought would happen to the earth if impure and pure came into contact. And it w- so when, um, when the priest is looking at this man, he's recognizing that part of the law is stating that in order to keep this purity, that he cannot touch dead people. Priests were not allowed. So then we should probably lay out the priest's options, right? If the priest touched the man and he was dead, then the priest would become ceremonially undefiled. And that means that by law, the priest would have to go back to the temple and undergo a week-long process of ceremonial purification. And that wasn't really something that you had to plan on a whim. You know, the resources had to be brought in, the right people had to be brought in, you'd have to call in someone else to do the ritual. And until he was purified, this priest, he could not collect the tithes, which meant that he couldn't eat from what came out of those tithes. Even more so, his impurity wasn't just kept at him, it extended to his family and to his servants, who would also have to be ceremonially purified. So in this meantime, when he was waiting to be purified again, he wouldn't be able to give to the poor, and he wouldn't be able to interact with any person at all. Basically, the law said that if he became impure, then he couldn't do his job until he was deemed clean again. And all because he had touched a dead guy who he wouldn't have been able to help anyway because he would have been dead, right? Can you see the reasoning that the priest might have been managing? Give me a nod or a shake. Okay, so then just because he saw this guy lying there, we could ask ourselves, couldn't he have just checked to see if the guy was dead? And if he was dead, then couldn't he have just gone on his way without anybody knowing it? Maybe, maybe. Maybe if he was able to suspend his own fear of bringing destruction onto the earth, sure. Maybe he would be able to make himself unclean and then go and do his job about the temple. But also, if he was found out to have been touching this man and then gone back into the temple or gone back home, if he was found out, say, by the Levite who was coming behind him, then 
he could have been legally beaten to death. The law would have condemned him there too. So that said, what if he had checked, what if the priest had checked to see if he's still alive and the guy was still alive? Well, then that means that the priest wouldn't have been unclean. However, if he had checked to see if the beaten man was alive and then the man died, then the priest would have been required to tear his clothes in observance of the laws about grieving, because there's a lot of laws about how to do that right. And if he were to tear his clothes in order to grieve right, then he would have violated another law that prohibited him from ruining priestly garments. It would appear as though the priest in Jesus' story was trapped by the laws. And nobody would have known that better than the lawyer who was listening to Jesus. There was no surefire way to handle this situation without violating one law or another. There was always a good reason not to help. The only way out would have been if the beaten man was not only alive, but had also survived. And that was a really big risk. So the lawyer knew that the easiest path for doing right according to the law by the way of the priest was either to just keep going, maybe send a party for help once he got somewhere where he was safe and could talk to others, or maybe just to pretend he didn't see that beaten man at all. So then Jesus goes on and says, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Okay, so we've talked about this before. Every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. Okay, so you have the priests that are like tip top, best people in the, in the temple. And then you have the Levites. They sort of could act as assistants or not. They were affiliated with temple worship, but not always necessarily. So they're not quite as high up as priests, but they were higher than the average worshiper, than the laymen in that hierarchy that we always create about who knows God better. And chances are that if the priest was heading down to Jericho following one of his stints at the temple, then this Levite is probably doing the same, is probably heading back to Jericho on a similar schedule. Now, perhaps the Levite knew that the priest was ahead of him on the road, and if he had, then the Levite would have known that the priest had intentionally beaten, or (laughs) had intentionally passed the beaten man. That would be a twist in the story, right? (laughs) So then, if this Levite is put into the quandary of his own, right? He knows the priest has passed by. Did the Levites try to pretend that he understood the law better than the priest? The Levite might have to face that same priest in Jericho that very night. Could the Levite ride into Jericho with a wounded or dead man on the back of his donkey or on his own back and show that person to the priest who the priest had chosen to ignore? It would have been a very risky social move for the act of the Levite. So if the religious law wasn't the thing that stops the Levite from helping, then It could very well be that the social laws that are based on honor and shame could have bound the Levite just as surely as the religious laws bound the priest. We don't really know what happened with the Levite. All this is conjecture, but you know, regardless, we know that the Levite does pass him by. So there's something about this story, the way that Jesus is telling this parable that is very common, was very common in ancient times and continues to be common today. And it's called a one, two, three pattern. 
okay? And when people would listen to these stories in ancient times, they would always know what was coming up. When you got to the one and the two, you knew what was coming in on the three. And the three always has the hero at the end. And it usually follows that conjecture, right? Of So you have the priest and then you have the Levite and then who's gonna come next? If you're the lawyer, who is it? Well, it's the good Samaritan to us, but to the lawyer, he was probably expecting the lay person, right? You have the priest, you have the Levite, then you have the average bear, and the average bear is the hero. So then, when we have Jesus deviating from the pattern, when the third person that comes into this story is a Samaritan instead of a lay person, like they would have expected following that one, two, three pattern, it would have completely blown apart the lawyer's expectations of being able to anticipate what the moral of the story was. So if we wanna put it, let me put it in other terms. It would be like if Jesus told this story today, saying that first a pastor came by, and then an elder came by, and then Osama bin Laden came by. (laughs) Same feeling. Now you don't know, oh my gosh, is Osama bin Laden gonna blow up the dead guy anyway? Or what could happen? So that's the same feeling that they're experiencing in this moment. And it stops the lawyer from assuming that he knows the end of the story. So then Jesus continues on. He says, the Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him, went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, went, took the denarii, said, look after him, I'll reimburse you. What's something that's important for us to keep in mind is that the Jewish and the Samaritan people had a really long-standing blood feud, and the Samaritans were cursed daily in the synagogues of the Jews, not cursed like, you know, bring down fire, but that there were prayers that appear to make it appear as though in the synagogues, Jews would pray that the Samaritans would not inherit eternal life which is sort of the same as saying like we sort of, we pray that the Samaritans go to hell. Like if it would be like us being like, we really hope those Baptists can't get in. (laughs) Similar feeling. So then you have this tribal feud that runs so deep into the social fabrics of both of these societies that when you imagine when when we have that Samaritan now in the story that we are following and that Samaritan is risking taking this beaten Jewish man into Jericho, what do you think that guy is being up against? There's one commentator who compares this moment of the Samaritan riding with this beaten man on his donkey, comparing it to a Native American riding into a saloon in the Old West with a cowboy over his horse, complete with arrows sticking out of his back. That's what it would have sounded like. It's a death sentence for that Native American, just like it would have been a death sentence for the Samaritan. And yet all the same, the Samaritan in our story not only stays the night with the man in the inn, not only pays for the man to stay two more weeks, but promises to return to cover any expenses left, promises to put himself in harm's way yet again, coming back into Jewish territory to care for a stranger he didn't know. The Samaritan man is using Literally all of his available resources, the oil, the wine, the cloth wrapping, the riding animal, his time, his energy, his money, and even his own life in caring for the wounded man. So Jesus finishes his story and he says, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor 
to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. And the truth is that this, again, it's not a very good translation into our English language. Because literally what Jesus is asking the lawyer is, which of these three do you think became the neighbor to the one who fell, to the one who was beaten? And that is a really different question from the question that the lawyer initially asked, isn't it? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, which of these became the neighbor? It turns out that this was never a story about who was qualified as the neighbor. It was never a story about who we are obligated to take care of, but it was a story about the person who chooses to be neighborly. Jesus is making it clear that it's not who we care for that is determined by the law, either religious law or social laws. It's not who we care for who determines our eternity. Jesus is saying that it's who we are as revealed by what we do that determines what kingdom we belong in. You know, for a while, in the very beginning of my time serving as a pastor, I thought it was sort of a strange leap for me to want to move from working with lawyers to wanting to work with church people. But over the years, I've realized, and I continue to realize more and more, that church people are really, really good at acting like lawyers. (laughs) We, too, are really good at trying to determine what we have to do in order to justify ourselves in order to save ourselves. If you ask most church people the question, are you a Christian? They'll say something like, well, yeah, I go to church and I have values based on Judeo-Christian ethic and I try to be a good person. And just like lawyers, we go tick, tick, tick the box, we should be in, right? Unfortunately, a lot of our conversations about what we mean when we describe ourselves as Christians about what it means to be a Christian are conversations that stay on the surface, particularly in the civil Christianity that we have in our society now. We hear a lot of people ask the question, have you been saved? And maybe if you're a Presbyterian, you'll be like, yeah. <laughs> and then you, you hear people say, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? That's a little easier for us. We're like, yeah, okay, I got it, we're covered. And then the person who asked that question is like, sweet, you're in. Now that you're in, that's all you have to do. Don't think about it, just obey the rules. We are really good as Christians at acting like lawyers, at creating new rules for us to obey. But that's not right. That's not what this is about. That's not what Jesus came here for. Because in order for us to thrive in the kingdom of God, there is a mentality of have done enough that needs to change to the mentality of what more can I do? And not what more can I do so that I know I have done enough, right? Because we're all really good at doing that game. But what more can I do because that is who I am, because that is who God has called me to be. My friends, this is the entire beckoning of the gospel. This is the entire reason why Jesus is here and calls us into the kingdom. Because the question that we have to address about the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of earth is the problem, not of what we do, but the problem of who we are. 
It's not that we haven't done enough. It's not that we haven't given enough. Those aren't the problems. The problems are that we can be lazy and that we can be selfish. The problem is who we are. And until we're able to admit those things about ourselves, until we're able to offer those things out and say, this is not who I am called to be, then we will always struggle to see how the kingdom of heaven, how eternity continues through all of time and includes our time even now. The beckoning of the gospel is for us to consider the identity that we have. The problem isn't the identity and the character of the beaten man on the road. The problem is the identity and character of the ones who walk by him. And the kingdom of God doesn't change the laws of what we do or what we don't do. The truth is that the kingdom of God changes who we are. So if we internally are not sensing, are not participating, are not choosing to be changed by the values of the kingdom of heaven that beckon to us every day through scripture and the spirit, then we're missing it. As we reframe our world, as we reframe our lives, may we reframe them by the questions that Jesus asks us, not the questions that we ask, not who is my neighbor, but how am I neighborly? Join me if we will as we pray. God, we remember that you give us an identity that the world doesn't always see, an identity as children, as friends. You give us the identity of people who are welcomed, who are free from the things that bind us. And so we pray, God, that we will embrace that identity, that we will bring that into who we are and let it overtake the things that we actually are, that we will remember that we are loved and replace it for the times that we are selfish, that we will remember that you are generous, making us generous, and replace it for the times that we are self-serving. May we be a people who embrace the identity that comes with the eternal kingdom. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.